Gizzard, also referred to as the ventriculus, gastric mill, and oh. gigarium, it's is an organ found in the digestive tract of yeah. some animals. It's the thing animals. that deals with like all the little bits of sand and pebbles and stuff that the birds eat. Right? Why, yeah. why in the world would that go into anything that I eat? <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. This is a special Thanksgiving edition of our weekly roundup, and it's showing up here in your feed early because we love politics, but we love our families more. We hope you're listening on the way to your loved ones. And in fact, in this episode, on top of all the politics news of the week, we're going to share some advice for you for when politics and families intersect. First, some introductions. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter here at NPR. And I'm Asma Khalid, cover demographics and politics. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. So today we're going to talk about the latest on the American and French response to the terror attacks in Paris, Donald Trump's latest comments in response to that story, and the whole big messy conversation that's kicked up about Muslim Americans. And of course, we'll end the show with Can't Let It Go. It's where we each talk about something, political or otherwise, that we just can't stop thinking about. But first, French President Francois Hollande visited the White House Tuesday afternoon. He met with President Obama in the wake of last week's terror attacks in Paris. Here's a clip from their joint press conference. In the faces of the French people, we see ourselves. And that's why so many Americans have embraced the blue, white, and red. And that's why Americans at candlelight vigils have joined together to sing the Marseillaise. We've never forgotten how the French people stood with us after 9-11. And today we stand with you. Nous sommes tous Français. So, Domenico, it's Tuesday afternoon as we tape this now, and you've been following this all day. Is there news from this meeting? Well, the president went on to say that Turkey has the right to defend its borders, which is fascinating given the Russian plane that was downed over the Turkish border, uh, because he went on to note that Russia needs to refocus on ISIS if it wants to be part of the coalition that goes against ISIS, joining France and others. The significance of that is a pretty tough stance from the president of the United States when you think about what he's trying to do to position the United States against Russia and so that Russians are not targeting moderate Syrian opposition, which is what the United States has accused the Russians of doing in the past. So guys, do you think that this, though, is the kind of thing that Americans are really paying attention to at all? I mean, is it going to be a topic at Thanksgiving at Thanksgiving dinner? Well, I think in particular on the Republican side of the aisle, this has been a top issue for at least a year. And Sarah, I think you could probably note the fact that you being on the campaign trail with a lot of Republicans, you've heard a lot of this on the campaign trail. Yeah. And many of them take a very you know hawkish point of view on it and, and, and want to really go after ISIS. Of course, there is dispute on the Republican side as well about just exactly how to carry that out. And you have folks like Rand Paul saying, you know, military intervention by the U.S. in the region has caused this problem. So let's watch out and not make things worse. What do the candidates now have to say about this? Um, this is a really, really tricky issue. What should we expect to hear from the candidates? For president. Well, it's a really tricky issue in particular for Democrats because President Obama's handling of foreign policy has nosedived over the last couple of years and in particular over the last year since ISIS has gained prominence and went up with these YouTube videos showing beheadings of journalists and others. Uh, so Hillary Clinton in particular has tried to navigate a position that was to the right of Bernie Sanders uh, and to the right of President Obama, but to the left of the Republican field. Bernie Sanders didn't really want to talk about this at the last debate wound up pivoting after two sentences. 
Okay, so we're going to keep following that story all week, but back to politics here. So the attacks in Paris have kicked up a lot of political dust here in the U.S. We're in the middle of a really big debate over whether the U.S. should accept Syrian refugees. At least two of the terrorists in France are thought to have passed through Greece. The thinking is they were among thousands of migrants fleeing wars. The president says the U.S. should be taking more than the 2,000 refugees who are already here. And we should say that's actually a very low number historically. But in the middle of all of this, Donald Trump's talking about wanting surveillance of certain mosques here in America. And then Donald Trump says this. Hey, I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down. And I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down. Thousands of people were cheering. So that was Trump at a rally in Alabama. He said that kind of thing again since, saying specifically that Arabs in New Jersey were cheering on 9-11. What do we know about this? Well, there's no evidence that there were thousands and thousands of Muslims in Jersey City, New Jersey, cheering at the time out in the streets. The police departments and the mayors of both of those towns in North Jersey uh, have dismissed this. They said that there was no truth to it then. There's no truth to it now. Now, Donald Trump, at an event earlier this week, held up a Washington Post article and tweeted that out from seven days after 9-11, in which it mentioned that authorities in Jersey City had detained some Muslim Americans who were thought to be seen on the rooftops with tailgate-style parties uh, as the towers were coming down. That's all that was in that. It certainly wasn't thousands of thousands of people in the streets. And to this point, still, the mayor of Jersey City disputes that there was anybody doing that. So I guess my question in all of this, though, I mean, and Sarah, maybe you know this covering the Republicans is, you know, this is a a, sort of a claim that he's made. uh, And it's been sort of debunked, fact checked in certain ways, but it doesn't really seem to stick much. I mean, you sort of hear Donald Trump make these claims and and to some degree, whether or not it's factual or not, doesn't really seem to affect him in some ways. Well, it seems like I mean, the conversation that I'm hearing, at least I was in Iowa a little bit before that happened. And, you know, at that time, Donald Trump had seemed to suggest that he'd be open to having a national ID for Muslims. I mean, he, he came back after that and said a reporter suggested that. And, and uh, that wasn't my idea, but he didn't really repudiate it. And, you know, people are very emotional about this issue. And I, I think kind of a lot of people have kind of made up their minds about, you know, a lot of adjacent issues like refugees, whether or not we should accept refugees. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think sometimes whether or not a statement is factual in this campaign gets lost. And there's just so much that these candidates are saying every day. And, and it's hard to keep up honestly, with the fact checking sometimes. There's so much distrust for the media among especially conservative Republicans that whatever the fact checkers come out and say, they're disputing that as not the right facts. And they'd rather hear it from a candidate or try to find something that substantiates their own beliefs. And the other part of this that was a little troubling uh, was on the ground there, we had people say to us, you know, well, you know, it could be true. You know, it's possible that it happened. Uh, They saw it on TV where they saw not people in Jersey City, but they saw Muslims in the West Bank in the Palestinian Authority celebrating. And they're saying, well, that could have happened in New Jersey. This goes a long way into the scientific research that we've seen on fact checking in particular, that depending on your point of view and your perspective, you're going in looking to reaffirm what you believe rather than being open to having your mind changed. So what does all of this say about the current 
climate for Muslims here in America, Asma? Yeah, I mean, I've been working on a piece around that particular topic, and I met this guy. I was at this halal supermarket in Northern Virginia, where there's a pretty sizable population of Muslims. And, you know, he told me something that I heard time and again from people in reporting the story, which is that the political climate right now feels way, way worse than after 9-11, which is huh, really that's interesting. So that's like after, worse, than, worse than after 9-11. Way worse than after 9-11. What accounts for that? And so, as- so I guess they, one woman I talked to, um, her name is Dahlia Mogahid. She used to work for Gallup for a number of years studying Muslims in America. She said that what she thinks is really interesting is that she's always seen the uptick in anti-Muslim sentiment thus far around both the 2008 and 2012 election cycles. Hmm. She said she did not see an uptick right after the Boston Marathon bombings, nor, in fact, immediately after September 11th. Really? Which is what, so, not after actual, so not after actual <laughs> terrorist attacks, but during election seasons. Election cycles, That's which makes her think that it is more sort of a political tactic in some ways, which, I mean, a couple of people told me this in different ways. One person said, well, you know, think back to right after 9-11, and probably within a week, right, George W. Bush he was. went it was, to the It was mosque. a week after, he went, and he also went to yep. Chicago, where he spoke to... Uh, uh, airline representatives and said that Islam was not the the enemy. And that he was evil really, was yeah, really yeah. outspoken about that, sort of praising, I think, you know, we have Muslims who are doctors and lawyers, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but, you know, and went to a mosque and made these statements. And so people sort of jump ahead and say, well, look at where we are now, where it's sort of in the public conversation, things that would have been unthinkable to say publicly what? are now so acceptable to say. And, um, and so there's this guy, and I think we have a clip of tape of him. His name was Umit Haja, and grew up in New Jersey, lives in Virginia now. And, I mean, you could sort of hear the palpable fear in his voice. He asked me for credentials. I I was sort of surprised. I was in a grocery store. I've never really been stopped in a grocery store asked for credentials. I think he was, A, really nervous to talk to us. But, um, but B, he also talked about just being really afraid to the point where he doesn't even like listening to the news. But let's take a listen to what he actually had to say. Well, um, it's been very negative, and I've, I've been trying to stay away from, you know, it, it kind of hurts to hear what's going on in the, in the news from a political perspective. And I've, I'm honestly, as much as possible, I've been trying not to hear too much of it because uh, it, it affects us emotionally. And he was in this grocery store where that was the call to prayer going off in the background. Yeah. You might have heard a little bit. Um, and, you know, he went on to talk about how he has kids. He's really concerned about sort of the, the America that they are, are growing up in. And, um, and I think part of this stemmed from some of Trump's rhetoric around the database of which, you know, we've heard sort of different iterations of that. But I think that the, the bigger database concern, of Muslims, to database of Muslims. And I think, and, you know, yeah. based on my trip to Iowa, you know, I think you may be onto something with the climate being different. I talked to several Iowa voters about this question, about the question of, of one, what to do about Syrian refugees and two, just generally Islam and some of Trump's comments. And and one man I spoke to in Des Moines, his name is Thomas Maurer. Uh, he was just eating breakfast and I stopped and you know asked him about some of his thoughts and, and specifically on this Muslim ID idea. Um, he said he thought it was fair because so many terrorist attacks, he said, have been perpetrated by Islamist groups. I said, well, what about these comparisons to World War II, to Jewish stars? You know, a lot of people are saying that this would put us on on that path. And here's what he said. Well, it's not a comparison because we're not talking about eliminating anybody. We're not talking about a uh, cleansing. We're not creating a scapegoat. All we're doing is saying what has happened has been perpetrated 100% of the time against Americans and other European entities by the populations coming from Muslim-dense countries. Hmm. It's amazing the dispassionate 
deepness and in, in his voice on that. I mean, especially to just use the word cleansing, which mm-hmm. is, I think, just such a difficult word to go to and to say out loud when it comes to this kind of topic that it is surprising to hear. I mean, I just think it's indicative of the sort of cultural moment we're in in the country right now. When I was speaking to Dalia Mogahid, who's this researcher who looks at Muslim Americans, one of the things she pointed out to me was how in previous election cycles, she had seen so many older Muslims in America vote as Republicans. The big shift was after 9-11. But she said what is interesting to her is among the younger generation, they are Democrat through and through because of progressive issues. They feel like kin to Black Lives Matter protesters, and they are on board with social justice and incarceration. So I feel like there's a general movement among a younger generation around people of color that is a commonality that we had not seen in previous generations. And I'll be curious to see where that goes. Yeah. I mean, four years ago, a lot of the, the youthful, you know, protest energy was around the Occupy movement. And that was really focused on economic issues, you know, and there were some disruptions. I was covering the Iowa race. I remember there were there were some protests at campaign offices. But I think that was easier for candidates to dismiss a little bit because by and large, I mean, Occupy was a largely white movement. It wasn't associated with with racial issues, which I think have added a whole other layer and wrinkle to what we're seeing. Well, now. it's life or death as compared to, you know, the banks and wage growth, which are certainly life or death long-term situations, but not immediately uh, yeah. in, a, in a neighborhood or, yeah. or right. in how people well, you know, view you. I uh, spoke with a woman who was involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and the Occupy movement, and she was talking about the differences. There were some racial differences, of course, but there were uh, folks of color in each. But she said a lot of times when Occupy would get a little bit too navel-gazy or too thoughtful or spend too much time on process, they could just do that. But whenever Black Lives Matter felt that same kind of stasis, she would say, well, someone else died and we had to Hmm. kind of re-up again. I mean, that is so interesting, though. But I think that's sort of, to me, the interesting conundrum of where we'll see the rhetoric play out in a general election writ large with various minority communities. There's a woman I met, and I I think, Sam, I might have mentioned this story to you. I was out in Orlando the other week at this big sort of hobnobbing conference. A number of the presidential candidates were there. And right after Donald Trump got done speaking, this is a giant hotel ballroom at a resort. This woman in a headscarf and a glittering Pakistani ethnic outfit comes up to me. And, you know, she says, Salam, I'm so excited. You know, there's not a lot of Muslims here at this event. So anyhow, jump ahead. I was so, like, fascinated by this woman. She lives here in D.C. So I called her in for an interview to sit down with her. And I wanted to get a better sense of, well, why are you Republican? Have you always been Republican? And and in a nutshell, she is deeply troubled by the same rhetoric. But she also feels like it's much harder to bash an individual face to face. It doesn't change overnight. It takes time. But I know definitely, like, your our presence makes a difference. And when people see you there and right in front of them, like, you know, it's hard to bash somebody if you're sitting right in front of them. I've sat in, I've sat in front of Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz. Their tone changes when you're sitting in front of them. They, they may go on TV or, like, you know, at rallies when they don't see Muslim. They may say all kinds of stuff. But when you're sitting in front of them, it, it's very different. Did she find that problematic? She's basically saying there's certain things they won't say to her face. (laughs) Did she not like, I mean, how does she feel about that? You know, she was just like this really, I don't, she was a really interesting woman, and I don't know how much it bothered her. I think more she believed that in the sense it was very easy for people to sort of use really strong language in the abstract. And it is worth pointing out that most Republicans who are running have repudiated Donald Trump's tone. I mean, John Kasich ran a banner telling Donald Trump that he should get out of his state of Ohio because of his rhetoric when it came to war heroes or even on refugees. You know, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, even Ted Cruz 
Cruz has hit Donald Trump on his tone, even though Cruz is no one's going to question his conservative bona fides. And he even himself called for some kind of a, a litmus test of Christians to come into the country. But he even felt like Trump had gone too far. You know, I mean, he talked about and, and just speaking of Trump's tone, it's not just his tone on this issue. There was another incident at a Trump rally recently, a Black Lives Matter protester tried to interrupt a Trump campaign event. And he was kind of roughed up by some folks there in the audience. And then after that, Trump said, maybe this guy deserved it. And it seems as if if we're already having this level of heated conversation about Muslims here in America, about the Black Lives Matter movement, we still have a year of this election. How heated will all this stuff get? Well, let's let's also just step back for a second. We only really have three more months of of a lot of this until the February 1st Iowa caucuses start and the voting begins, right? And once these guys filter themselves out and you don't have a dozen or more Republicans running and uh, you know a trio of Democrats running, you'll wind up hearing a pivot in tone in the spring of next year where people will be looking to try to, instead of appeal to just their bases, try to reach out to people who, with a more moderate tone. But I mean, the level of rhetoric being where it is, is the kind of rhetoric that you just have not heard for a long, long time in politics. Maybe the holiday season will give us all a minute to just catch our breath. Well, let's hope so. I mean, but we know what our Thanksgiving tables are like. It's not exactly the most civil sometimes. True enough. And that brings us to the real reason for the season. Black Friday, oh, JK, man. JK, Thanksgiving. <laughs> like we said, we're taping this on Tuesday. So if you're hearing this before heading home for Thanksgiving, all week in NPR politics, we have been collecting and giving out advice on how to avoid political arguments during the holidays. Stay so, home? St- what'd you say? Stay home? Stay home. <laughs> Sit at the kids' table. Um, what things have we heard? Well, one of the things I, th- I found kind of funny, we put a call out on our Facebook page on NPR politics, which you should go like <laughs> right plug, now. Just plug. Oh, you're, you're like the candidates plugging their websites in the debates, man. You know I don't like that. NPR politics Facebook. At least it's not a URL. Okay, continue. Anyway, so we put this call out on NPR politics on our Facebook page, and we heard from some some people who actually read it and like it, so it's good. And one woman from Denver, Colorado, Sally Carlton, has some really good advice. She says, We have both liberal and ultra conservatives in the family, so we decided to nip it in the bud. Discussion of politics and religion are out when we when we are all together. My sister-in-law got a great duck quacker. Yellow plastic looks like a duck's bill and quacks when you blow in it. The instant someone forgets and launches into one of those subjects, we blow the quacker and it's over. That That would get on my first and last nerve. That would annoy me more than the political arguments. I think we need a a quacker quack here for Sam. Yeah. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think my family could use that. I'm not going to mention any names because I I want my family to still be friends with me. But we, I can relate, Sally, if you're listening to this, because I definitely have arch conservatives and arch liberals in my family as well. We have had, and, you know, everyone loves each other, but they disagree about a lot of things. And there's been a lot of trading of, of books in, over the years, you know, here, just read this book and then you'll, like, then you'll agree with me and understand. Like, Be educated. Yes, oh. yes. And, and, yeah. So what do you do, though? Well, one, my biggest piece of advice is actually, like, you have to prepare. So sorry, maybe this is too late. But, like, like, prepare political talking like, points? No, prepare in the sense of, like, if a holiday is coming, <laughs> like, there should be a no politics zone for, like, a good, like, six weeks to two months prior to the oh. holidays. So we're probably we're Good past luck with it. politically engaged people doing that. Yeah, but, yeah. I, know, I know we're past that. Yeah. But also, you know, it all follows fails. Just... Talk about the kids. If you've got kids, and most families, if they're big enough, have some kids, and they are, 
the kids are annoying and distra- I have some and I love them, but they're annoying <laughs> and distracting. And this is a blessing. But what them. if you don't have kids? And if you don't have kids, uh, I would say pets. Like uh, dogs. there's got to be something. Dogs, right? Yeah. Or yeah. sports. I mean, sports. Yeah. Well, I I love to cook on Thanksgiving. I love to cook the Thanksgiving meal. Maybe part of that is that I don't have to engage with people on on this stuff. <laughs> but in the kitchen. but I love how I I just I love cooking. I like I like how it all turns out. And I think one of the best things that you can do and the best compliment that I'd gotten a couple years ago when I made uh, dinner for my family was silence. Nobody talked. Everyone was eating. just eating that the food. Good. And that, that to me, that shut down the conversation. <laughs> it, everybody was happy. That's that's the way to go. Make sure your food's good. I like this idea of having like a horn to blow or having a rule book. But the challenge for that, especially with wasps, is like then you first have to actually before you can institute such a policy, you have to have a conversation about the fact mm. that you need to have a policy and, you know, a lot of families like most folks know what don't wasps talk mean. about that. Define oh, wasps sorry, really white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. I don't think that we're so big on having <laughs> so those confrontational here's, here's conversations. The, here's the problem, problem with uh, Italian Roman Catholics. The rules don't apply. You just have to, you just keep talking and you talk louder and louder and louder and louder and that's the only person who winds up talking and, you, you know, sometimes you wind up making the most noise just at the bottom level decibel but man, I've, it gets loud. Yeah. I've been at some tables as a black Pentecostal where the conversations <laughs> got heated for some reason and someone just starts praying to shut everybody up. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it's even better when the prayer takes on a little bit of a... Uh-huh. Uh, they're kind of talking at you with the prayer. Uh-huh. Oh, Dear Lord, Lord, help this heathen shut up. <laughs> Lord, please open their eyes. I, I'm sensing a lot of passive aggression with the books and with the uh, prayers. Yeah. At your yeah. You know, I think it's wow. What I find is always foolproof Start talking about gossip, gossiping mm. about folks at church or folks in the neighborhood, or like they're much easier targets than actual national political from one bad behavior, as my mama would say, to another bad. <laughs> but like, if there's one person who I am grateful whole... for Sam's gossip. And that's right, gossip killed the savage beast. Um, okay, now it's time for can't let it go. When we talk about the thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Asma, what's the thing you can't let go this week? Okay, the thing I can't let go oh, has you're, nothing uh, you, to do with it's, politics. It's okay. it's good, it's good. But if you all saw SNL last weekend, uh-huh. yes. well, I don't want to date ourselves. Adele, oh my gosh. So I have Adele's Hello. You know, I, I listened to that song, then I saw that, and now I'm like obsessively listening to Hello. She says Hello really weird. It's like the stalker track. <laughs> a little bit. But like the way she's like, hello, hello. Like, I can't even do it. I think so if you hello. haven't seen that SNL, you need to watch that SNL before Thanksgiving because it will make family Talk dinner a lot yeah. more sense. There's this one skit, right? There's this one skit. And there's all these family members sitting down to Thanksgiving and, you know, the politics of the, the day comes up. You have one relative who's anti, I don't know, was it Refugee, Latina? Refugees. And then trans people. Exactly. But All the sort of touchy cultural issues come up and clearly people are going to butt heads and then the little girl in the family goes over to the old tape player. Did you yeah. notice that was a tape oh, player? Oh, okay, good catch. She pushed the button, right? And Did then Adele starts playing. And then Adele starts playing. And everyone stops ar- stops arguing. And there's peace for a moment. But I love but it. And it is great. kind of a little political because if you think about it, if you play Adele over Thanksgiving dinner, maybe, you know, there won't be any political fights with your family. There you go. <laughs> Lesson learned. Let's hope so. Domenico, what can't you let go this week? Uh, Well, you know, the thing is, every year, the president, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, pardons a turkey. (laughs) It is the strangest thing. And about six years ago, 
I started thinking, when did this happen and why did this happen? So this has been sort of a six-year journey for me to try to go down this. <laughs> also known as an obsession. But why, are you, but why are you so obsessed with it? I, you know, because it just, it, it's something struck me as just odd. I, maybe it's because we all eat turkey. And then I started to learn some sad truths about these, these turkeys. Sad truths? Sad truths. I well, I want to know these. Here's the thing. Uh, <laughs> I hate to ruin it for everybody, but these turkeys do not last very long after they're pardoned. When the president says they'll spend their golden years uh, out in the fields of Virginia, wherever they're sent, which is it is a, a farm in Virginia. Vernon? It used to be, not anymore. Oh, there's a there's right a farm there. in Virginia that the former governor of Virginia, uh, Westmoreland Davis, used to raise his turkeys oh there. How do you know so much about turkeys? I it's been six years of research, but. Uh, <laughs> But, they, but these turkeys, the thing is they're industrially bred. So they're raised to be eaten. They're not raised uh, to be uh, to live out their days in the wild. like free range. In fact, only one of the presidential pardon turkeys is still alive. Cheese from last year's duo, Mac and Cheese, <laughs> uh, is, is still alive. But do the and, and the problem with Cheese, he couldn't even walk by the time they got oh. to, the, to the park. Uh, Mac... Uh, died in July, and this happens every year where they don't even last a year because they because their organs fail. They're too big for their for their bone structure. Domenico and, took it know, there. And Thanks, here's Debbie and, Downer. And, here, and here's <laughs> the thing. Like, here, here, but here's the interesting part about this: is that like when they first started this tradition, when the National, when did they start it? The National Turkey Federation started this in 1947 wow. with Harry Truman. Why they, then? Why? You know, they were there had been a long line of people who were providing turkeys to the uh, White House back to 1873. There was a guy from Rhode Island who who would you provide an amount of knowledge on, on hand about this. And then it became a free-for-all when the guy died in 1913. So between 1913 and 1947, there was this opening for who would provide the turkeys to the White House. Well, the National Turkey Federation and the Poultry and Egg National Board stepped in. These are lobby groups for turkeys. They have an office four blocks from the White House. Okay, even turkeys need lobbyists. <laughs> okay, and they have they bring the turkeys to the White House to try to make turkey a staple at Christmas and Thanksgiving dinners. It worked. It worked. But the thing that's interesting about this is the optics of presidents, because back then in 1947, you know, this wasn't in front of cameras or whatever. The Truman Library had to debunk because Bill Clinton had said in 1997 that Truman was the first to pardon a turkey. Didn't happen. The Truman Library, in fact, said that he never met a turkey he didn't eat. <laughs> so they, they traditionally had eaten these turkeys. But now when you're in front of cameras and you've got all these Disney movies and there's a turkey clucking around, you don't want to say, uh, all right, let's eat this guy. But, you know, maybe they should. The problem is, like, we're so separated. You think about war, food. You go down your freezer aisle, oh you pick out a turkey. And that's that's just not the way food used to be. You Someone's know. on a soapbox. I'm just telling you. It's just, it's just so here, an interesting thing. Here's my thing. thing with turkey, though. Yeah. Like, it's actually not a great meat. It's tough. Like it's dry. You have to work really hard. You have to work really hard to get turkey you tender. You got to brine it. You got to yeah. slow see, roast. You got to like putting gravy on it is not the gravy. turkey, right? So, so I'm with you. I'm with <laughs> Sam on that because turkey the, turkey's not actually good on its own. It takes some work. But if you're looking for something to say about turkey, the turkey at Thanksgiving this year, well, there Domenico has just provided us with. Yes. Though it might not be good for the table, right? The appetite might mm. go down if you're yeah. talking about it. Anyway. Nothing usually gets between me and my turkey at Thanksgiving, <laughs> but whatever. Well, gobble, gobble. Um, <laughs> Sarah, what can you not let go this week? Okay, mine kind of has to do with politics and kind of not. It's like politics adjacent, I would say. So I was recently at this event in Iowa called the Presidential Family Forum. It was a bunch of Republican candidates hosted by a conservative Christian group called the Family Leader. And I got to hand it to the sound guy. 
at this thing because the soundcheck guy was performing the most epic, thorough soundcheck I have ever <laughs> witnessed. And I, we witness a lot of these things at these yeah. events. I think we have some tape of it. Two, ha, ha, <laughs> two, two, ha. Why is he saying ha? You tell me. <laughs> two, two, check, hey, hey. <laughs> One, two. And guys, this one he on. wanted he to be a DJ does, and it didn't work ha. out. Does he start ha. rapping? Ha. This just went on. Uh, for, and it was like a yeah. whole range How of long sounds. Did it go on? Ha. I mean. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, wow. I have like almost five minutes. I'm gonna start doing two wah now. Yeah, and this went on for minutes. I mean, I have almost five minutes of it, and that wasn't even the whole thing. So now, if you know, if you're an if you're an audio engineer out there, and you know why we heard this, please tell us because I mean, they make us they make us do a lot of funny things before we start. You know, you have to have your your poppin' peas, you know, pickled peppers and politics and yeah, and all that stuff. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> two, Still going on. But hey, we just know. like set that to a backbeat. Yeah. <laughs> he agrees. Uh, that was brilliant. Uh, <laughs> That's it. I'm done. Uh, Stick a fork in me. I've like, got, I can't function. It's like meditative, kind of, you know? <laughs> so that's what I can't stop thinking it's, about. What? Well, oh, we yeah. Even need, we need to, I mean, we can skip mine. That takes the cake. Um, I'm working on a story about. All of the stuff that the campaigns sell in their online stores, what Hillary sells, what Jeb sells, what they all sell. Um, there are some really cute ones, like Marco Rubio sells Marco polos, like polo shirts. Womp womp. Yeah. I like it. But by far, <laughs> by far, the most exciting, interesting, engaging, dynamic online campaign shop for a candidate in 2016 belongs to Rand Paul. Kudos Rand to Paul's like what? On, what? What is he Rand Paul's it? online shop is on point and on fleek. He has <laughs> a filibuster starter pack for sale for thirty bucks, which includes a spy cam blocker for your computer's little uh, camera thing. Oh. He has um, a Hillary hard drive, so they've taken old discarded so hard drives. Has, has so we know where Hillary's hard drive no. is. Funny. He, he's just taken old random hard drives, oh. put a Hillary logo on top of them, and then added like a little wipe for like wiping the hard drives. Oh, yeah. But the best That's one, clever. the best one was, it's called an autographed zombie clown target. I will let uh, Steve Grubbs, the head of the online store, tell you what that is. When Senator Paul was in Nevada, he went to a gun range. So we uh, got the, the target that he shot he autographed it, and now it's one of the items that we have on there that uh, helps raise funds for the campaign. They're selling a Target poster with a big old clown on it and bullet holes in it, signed by Rand Paul for $1,000. I mean, I'm no, it's I'm, amazing. I'm no clown fan, but why the uh, abuse of clowns? It's like an evil clown. I, oh. Yeah, you have to see it. but like if clowns don't scare you enough, like a bullet-riddled clown isn't creepier? Okay. <laughs> it might make you feel pretty good, I guess, But you don't like so, clowns. Cathartic. I, so like, I had this long talk with this guy, Steve Grubbs. They're doing all kinds of promotions, a Black Friday discount. They're bringing out some new items, the filibuster pack, the liberty pack, the this, the that, all of this special stuff. And he says, we're trying to accomplish two goals. Not just to raise money for the campaign, but no, to push the not. narrative. Like, all of these items, they're tied to Rand Paul's themes of liberty, his anti-Hillary stance. Like, if you look, each of these items 
ties back to his core message. message. Well, they should have a message, but you know, they they do have to do this these kinds of things because they're trying to raise money. I mean, I wonder what the overhead is. If more on... people want the clown poster, will Rand Paul personally shoot one up? For shoot you? some more. Uh, well, I'll ask him. Cool. Cool. All right. That's all the time we have for this week. Have a great Thanksgiving. I am Sam Sanders, campaign reporter here at NPR. I'm Asma Khalid, cover demographics and politics. Domenico Montanaro, political editor here at NPR. Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And we'll see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast. Happy, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving.